0: Namaste to all of you. Um, let me start with a prayer and then I'll speak about the subject which uh, is before us. After that, we will interact. There's so many eager faces here. I'm sure you have comments or questions which you want to share afterwards. All right then. Om Sarve Yatra Santu Sarve Santu Niramaya Sarve bhadrani pasyanto makash Om, let all here be happy. Let all here be free of disease and suffering. Let all here see, see auspiciousness. Let suffering come to none. Om, asatoma sadgamaya tamasoma jyotirgamaya. Amritam Gamaya Om Shanti Om lead us from the unreal to the real, lead us from darkness unto light, lead us from death to immortality. Om peace peace peace. I want to begin by first acknowledging the enormous amount of uh, suffering and struggle that people are undergoing because of the pandemic, especially in India, where most of you are located. Um, We have been seeing all the scenes of desperate struggle, especially even people um, struggling to get oxygen. Uh, That's uh, one big crying need right now. Swami Vivekananda, More than 100 years ago, he said it is an insult to a starving man to talk about metaphysics to him, to offer metaphysics to a starving man. And it's true, it's an insult to a man gasping, uh, somebody gasping for air to talk about metaphysics and philosophy. Having acknowledged that, I want to focus. Uh, on on suffering and philosophy. You see, in a certain sense, if you step back from the present crisis and take a look at the human situation as a whole, Vedanta and other Indian philosophies are most relevant. If you, um, Heinrich Zimmer, the very well-known Indologist, in his book on philosophies of India, he says that the philosophies of ancient India are not pessimistic. They are actually most optimistic. They talk about suffering, the causes of suffering, but they also say all of them, that there is an end to suffering. There is an actual solution, deep and profound and lasting solution to suffering. So it is at times like this, suffering is all pervasive in human life. You see, uh, it um, ordinary people like us we become upset and uh, um, uh, depressed and anxious at times like this when we are faced with global suffering. But a great person like the Buddha, for example, like um, Kapila, uh, Swami Vivekananda called him the first philosopher of the human race, they are aware that suffering is a permanent and pervasive condition of human life. We may not Uh, Our attention may not be on it, but everybody, somewhere or the other, for some reason or the other, there is suffering going on all the time. So this question of suffering and how to overcome suffering, that is the central focus of philosophy in India. It is not uh, theoretical in that sense. It is not speculation in the air, It is actually concerned in the most practical aspect of human life, how to overcome suffering. All those philosophies, if you look at Vedanta itself, what is the goal of Vedanta? atyantika dukhanivritti paramananda praptischa. Complete cessation of suffering, complete transcendence of suffering, and attainment of bliss. If you look at um, uh, Sankhya, Yoga, Nyaya, Vaisheshika, all the ancient philosophies of India, uh, Jainism, all of them have this in common that they start with the question of human suffering and how to overcome. Nyaya, the word for liberation or moksha, what we call moksha or mukti in Vedanta, the ancient term for that is Apavarga. And Apavarga in, in Nyaya and Vaisheshika, it means uh, release from suffering. And Jainism also, the goal is release from suffering. And attainment of fulfillment. Sometimes the positive side is stated also that it's attainment of fulfillment. Sometimes one thing is common that the, it is overcoming of suffering. Most famously, Bhagavan Buddha, um, he starts with this question of suffering. You know, one later writer um, in the Sarvadarshana Sangraha of Madhavacharya, he characterizes the teaching of the Buddha. He says, chikitsaka it is, It has reso- resonance for us today uh, in, this, in this time of disease and suffering. Just, these great teachers were like doctors, chikitsaka. How are they like doctors? First of all, they identify the suffering. What is the problem and the symptom? And then they identify whether it has a cause. What is the root cause of that? Then they identify, is there a solution or is it incurable? This is a solution. Then they identify the treatment for it. So look at the Buddha's teach, uh, teachings. Dukkha, that's the problem. Then there is a cause, Trishna. And then there is a cure, Nirvana. And then there is a method, a treatment, Ashtanga Magga, the Ashtanga Marga, of Bhagavan Buddha. Um, what precisely can these philosophies do for us? Not only now at the time of acute suffering, but also in general, overall in our life. Bhagavan Buddha was asked that uh, you promised, by a monk. a very interesting question. The question is, you promised, oh oh, Bhagavan Buddha, you promised us that we will overcome suffering. Uh, Suffering is caused by old age and disease and death, jarab, um, the vyadhi. So these are the causes of suffering. But now, we are your followers, we are monks. Uh, We find that just like those who are not Buddhists, who are not monks, uh, they are getting old, they are getting diseased, they are dying. We are also getting old, we are also getting diseased, and we are also dying. So how did we overcome suffering? I call this a consumer complaint, that uh, you (laughs) you promised something, but you are not delivering. So the Buddha's answer is very perceptive and from that we understand exactly not just buddhism what can vedanta do for us what use is it for us especially in crisis you know people ask is this the time in this serious uh, where people are suffering so much is this the time to talk about philosophy this is the time this is the time so the B- buddha's answer is, is something that we will keep in mind his answer was suffering is of um two kinds uh, suffering is of two kinds one is that suppose a person is hit by an arrow a, a person is hit by an arrow imagine the shock and the pain and the, the trauma and ima- imagine that immediately afterwards he is hit by another arrow second arrow imagine the suffering then so the first arrow is what the world throws at us old age Um, the disease, pandemic, financial problem, um, health problem, mental problem, relationship problems. So this is the first arrow, what the world will throw at us. The second arrow is our reaction to this suffering. How do we react to it? Notice in the same circumstance, same old age problems, same disease problems, same financial problems, two persons react in two different ways. And some person, some people break down under that uh, the weight of the suffering. Some don't even seem to feel it. They are so full of positivity, so engaged with their life that they don't seem to care that there are so many problems in their personal life. No. So that means actually suffering is how we react to the problems thrown at us by by the world. Uh, that second arrow is is what we must deal with. And Bhagavan Buddha says that the first arrow, I cannot do anything about it. The first arrow is, it comes from our prarabdha karma, comes because of the very nature of the universe. You are in this continuously changeful universe. And therefore, um, this kind of problems will keep cropping up. But the second one, the second arrow, how to handle that, that I can talk about. And that is what Buddhism does. They teaches you how to... Overcome suffering in the midst of life. Um, Sri Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, the, the characteristic of a sthita prajna, dukeshu anudvigna So and sukheshu vigatas In the midst of sufferings, you remain serene and calm, calm and unshaken. Anudvigna mana. in the midst of sufferings, which means even for a sthita prajna, you notice the implication. Even for a sthitta an enlightened person, a jivan mukta, a perfected person, dukkha will keep coming. Old age will come. Disease will come. Death will come. And Swami Vivekananda says, Who will not die? He says very bluntly at one place um, kings die and paupers die. The learned die and the ignorant die. Um, the The uh, saints die and sinners die. Death comes for all of us, but we must be—we must go to such a position where we are not affected, where you are not shaken by it, where it is almost like it is nothing to us. Like Krishna says in the very beginning of his teaching to uh, Arjun in the Bhagavad Gita, just as you change a suit of clothes, oh prince, and if your clothes are uh, old or soiled, you take them off and you put on another. <laughs> A set of clothes, to in that casual way, you can you can treat your the death of your own body, that it is really nothing to you. Can we can we rise to that level? Can we get that kind of clarity, conviction, and centeredness, where we can deal with even the greatest and gravest problems of our life with that serenity? So that is the purpose. That is the grand purpose of spiritual inquiry of the word used in india is darshana darshana you know when we go to a philosophy departments darshan vibhag we say now i remember when we studied philosophy um, even as monks we were always told that indian philosophy and western philosophy are different i remember my uh, teacher in western philosophy um, professor Nirod baran chakravarti was a wonderful teacher He's passed away He used to come to our uh, monastery in India, in Belurma, to teach the brahmacharis there. We had to learn all kinds of uh, subjects, including Western philosophy. So he would tell us, all the students were all brahmacharis, uh, you know, like novice monks. Um, Remember, philosophy is, Philo and sophia, love of wisdom. It is not darshan in the Indian sense. So you must be very clear what you're going to learn now in Western philosophy uh, is not darshan. In the Indian sense, in the Darshan in Indian sense, Indian sense is actual realization or experience of the highest truths, seeing. Darshan literally means seeing, so seeing the highest truth, that is um, the idea in Indian philosophy. And I also thought, Ma, that must be so, um, sir, it must be so. Only recently, two years ago, uh, I was reading this book, A History of Thought, by Luc Ferry, a French philosopher. He was an education minister in France and a philosopher. France is one of the few countries in the world, much more than even India, where philosophy is highly regarded till today. It is taught in schools. I mean, more the shame on us that uh, with, with this tremendous unparalleled unmatched heritage, we don't share it with our children, with, with our next generation, Uh, but that's changing now. That's a good, good sign. And we need much more of that. Anyway, I read that book, A History of Thought, Luke Ferry. And there he says, um, so remember, he's French. So the French generally have a little bit of a contempt for all English-speaking uh, academics and acad- uh, academia. So he says, philosophy is not the right word. The right word is theory. And then he splits it up, gives an etymology of that. Um, Theon and oral, um, I've forgotten the exact terms. If you go back to the roots of that, what does it mean? Theory literally means see. Theos means the uh, ultimate reality or God. And means to see, to see the ultimate reality. I was stunned. I thought this is the meaning of darshan. What we mean by darshan in Sanskrit, the, the English word, if you go back to its um, roots, uh, you, you will find it means the same, exact same thing to see or realize the ultimate reality. Now, what is Vedanta? Very quickly, I'll just touch upon it and then get to the central subject today. Um, Vedanta nama Upanishad Pramanam. Vedanta is literally the texts called the Upanishads, the source of spiritual knowledge, to be technically accurate, the source of spiritual knowledge called the Upanishads is Vedanta. Upanishads, as you know, are these, Spiritual philosophical texts found scattered throughout the Vedas. They are not literally at the end of the Vedic Sanghitas, but they contain the final or the highest teachings. In fact, <clears throat> Anta in Vedanta, the word Anta literally does not mean the end of the Vedas, it means the highest or final teachings of the Vedas. Anta in the sense of Siddhanta, final conclusion, highest teaching. So Vedanta is the Siddhanta or the final conclusions of the Vedas. Um, Upanishads are the root texts, but then uh, we know that the Bhagavad Gita is, is central to Vedanta. Bhagavad Gita is nothing other than the teaching of the Upanishads, but presented by uh, Sri Krishna to Arjuna in a very practical, uh, you know, like practical spirituality. So the choicest teachings taken from the Upanishads and made into a nice bouquet and presented by Sri Krishna to Arjuna in the the Mahabharata What That's the Bhagavad Gita. So Bhagavad Gita is another root text of Vedanta. And then there is the philosophical side of it, the Sutra text called the Brahma Sutras. So these three together, we all know, we all talk about Prasthanatrai, the triple foundation or the triple canon of Vedanta the canonical texts, root texts of Vedanta, Upanishads foundation, the Bhagavad Gita and the uh, Brahma Sutras, also known as the Shruti Prasthana, Smriti Prasthana and Nyaya Prasthana. And that's just the foundation. After that, there's a whole commentarial tradition. So Adi Shankara, Shankaracharya, for example, he wrote commentaries called Bhashyas on uh, 10, if not 11, at least 10, we are, we are sure, 10 Upanishad, Dasha Upanishad, and on the Bhagavad Gita, on the Brahma Sutras. And then there are sub-commentaries to these commentaries. Anandagiri wrote um, Tikas on, on Shankara Acharya's commentaries and so on. And the whole tradition of post Shankara Dvaitans, uh, whether his own disciples like um, Padmapada Acharya or um, Specialist, Uh, Sureshwar Acharya. And after that, so many, many, many Vidyaranya Swami, um, Madhusudan Saraswati, uh, Sri Harsha, Chitsukhacharya, and so many great masters throughout a history of nearly a thousand years. But that's one tradition of Vedanta. I must also uh, emphasize here, Vedanta is a vast ocean, not just Advaita Vedanta. Though I belong to the school of Advaita Vedanta, but one must acknowledge that Vedanta, depending on the commentaries, the great Acharyas, so Ramanuja, Ramanuja Acharya's commentary on the Brahma Sutras is the uh, foundation for the system known as Vishishtadvaita, just as Shankaracharya's commentaries are the foundation for Advaita Vedanta. And notice, none of them claim to be the founders of those systems. Uh, Shankaracharya is not the founder of Advaita Vedanta, nor is Ramanuja the founder of vishishtadvaita dvaita. Uh, each of those traditions is, um, is um, very ancient. Madhuacharya's commentary uh, is the foundation for dvaita vedanta. Similarly, from Vallabhacharya, we get the uh, commentarial foundation for Shuddhat dvaita. Um, then there is dvaita dvaita of Nimbarka Acharya. Even Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, uh, from him comes, from his disciples, comes the Achintya Veda Veda school which is the philosophical foundation of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Here in the United States, people are familiar with the ISKCON. And they, are all, they are popularly called the Hare Krishnas. So I say that, see, all the forms of Hinduism that you see, uh, so many Hindu temples have come up in the West here in, in, in the United States. So what is the relationship of Vedanta to all of them? They are the philosophical basis of these religious movements. If you go to a Swaminarayan temple, Big, big Swaminaran temples have come up here. So, If you go to a Swaminaran temple, but you want to know what is the thought behind it? What is the system, the philosophy behind it? Then you will, uh, it was originally, it was based on Ramanujacharya's Vishishtadvaita Vedanta, but now they have developed. Uh, Vedanta is still a living and growing tree. So they have developed their own system of Vedanta. Uh, and if you go to an Iskon temple, you ask what is the philosophy behind it? It is the Achintya Veda Veda School of uh, Vedanta. If you come to us, Vedanta Society here, it is the Advaita Vedanta of uh, Adi Shankaracharya and so on. So that is the textual basis of uh, Vedanta. Um, How did it come here? A little note on that before I go to the core teachings. The place I am sitting in is actually interesting that way. The Vedanta Society of New York, And uh, it was founded in 1894. It is the first Hindu organization in the West. Uh, I often, it's it's just an ordinary brownstone building here in the Upper West in Manhattan. Uh, But when people walk by on the street, they just look at it, Vedanta society, and then they see 1894. They stop and come back and take a look again. 1894. I mean, for a country like India, 1894 is nothing. It's just yesterday. But for a country like the United States, it's really old. <laughs> Everything 100 years old is really old. 200 years is ancient history. here. So, yes, Swami Vivekananda, when he came here in the World Parliament of Religions in 1893 in Chicago, uh, he became very popular and then he was invited by New Yorkers. So even the New Yorkers were very enterprising and up and doing. So they caught hold of Swami Vivekananda and said, you come to New York and teach uh, Vedanta to us. So he came and in 1894 this Vedanta Society was set up. It's the first Vedanta Society, first Hindu ashrama, first Indian Hindu organization in the whole western world, in, in, at least in the United States. And other Vedanta societies, they came up after this. Um, and there's a very nice book, American Veda by Phil Goldberg, which traces the influence of Hinduism in the United States, in the history of the United States. And he says it starts primarily with this, uh, the Vedanta Society of um, New York. And then, of course, many other great teachers came afterwards, whether it is Paramahamsa Yogananda, you know, the Self-Realization Fellowship. Uh, then in the 1950s, 60s and so on, you had the Transcendental Movement, um, Maharshi Mahesh Yogi. You have... Uh, Uh, Srila Prabhupada coming with the ISKCON, uh, he started the ISKCON here. Um, You have the entire yoga, the physical yoga part. I think it's more popular in uh, United States than it is in India. Uh, So almost before the pandemic, almost every other street here in Manhattan had a yoga studio. So people were practicing the physical side of it, the asanas and the pranayama. So popular here, once I was called to give a talk in Los Angeles, To school kids about Hinduism, to introduce them to Hinduism. And when I mentioned yoga, one uh, little boy stood up excitedly and said, Oh, you have yoga in India also. So, yes, that is how, that is the history behind it. Before this, in what one might call the prehistory of Vedanta in in, uh, USA, um, in the late 19th, late 18th century, a Frenchman, young Frenchman, Anketil Duperon. By the way, there is a very nice book written by my illustrious predecessor here, uh, Swami Tathagatanji Maharaj, who was here until 2016. He passed away here. He wrote a book, one of his many books, Journey of the Upanishads to the West. So there you find all these details. A young Frenchman who was the first French Indologist, Anketil Duperon, he journeyed to India. He was interested in finding out the roots of Christianity. Uh, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. So the roots are in Zoroastrianism, and he had heard that the, about the Parsis, you know, the Zoroastrians uh, who are in India. So he wanted to go to India and find out the original, you know, like Zendavesta, the original texts. So they are very interested in finding out the roots of their religions. at that time, 18th century, 19th century. Anyhow, he did get the Zendavesta, and he did translate it, and all those things are to his credit. Very enterprising young Frenchman. Uh, but uniquely, uh, for uh, um, Vedanta, he came across the translation of the Upanishads, which had been made by Dharashukha. Now, uh, he actually got it after he went back to France, which was sent to him by his contacts in India. We know that Prince Dharashukha, Aurangzeb's elder brother, he was quite interested in um, uh, Indian philosophy. So he took the help of the pandits in Banaras and he got a translation about 50 upanishads with some portions of shankara's commentary uh, he got it translated into persian so that persian translation fell into the hands of this young frenchman who translated it retranslated it into latin and he gave it the name upnikhat two volumes upnikhat um, late 18th century and this upnikhat Latin translation of Persian translation of the Sanskrit original. This fell into the hands of a copy came to the hands of the great German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, and Schopenhauer he read it, and he is famous. I mean, it became his favorite book till the end of his life. He said till the end of every day I read a few pages of this Upanishad, and he famously said that I consider no reading in the in the world, no literature in the world as valuable as the reading of these Upanishads, except perhaps the original. So that was his evaluation of uh, Vedanta. And in the US itself, it became known more or less among intellectuals because of the American transcendentalists, Emerson, Thoreau, and Walt Whitman. So Emerson, for example, he had the, in those days, the best collection of Indian philosophy books Um, here on the East Coast. And uh, through him, Thoreau was influenced, Walt Whitman was influenced, and these are very important figures in um, American culture. They are sort of foundational for American culture. So last year, you mentioned I was at Harvard University. The philosophy department there is called Emerson Hall. And so there's a big statue of Emerson there. And the history is very interesting. Emerson himself used to teach at Harvard. And one day he gave a talk, which was very Vedantic. And so the Christians at that time were pretty narrow-minded and fundamentalist. They threw him out, boycotted Emerson, that you can never come back to Harvard University. You were talking about this strange philosophy. So he was boycotted. And later on, of course, he became the greatest philosopher of America. And so uh, Harvard had to eat humble pie and invite him back. And now the philosophy department is known as Emerson Hall. (laughs) there's a little curious little um, fact. Oh, two more facts before I go on. Today, 1st May, is a very interesting uh, in the history of Ramakrishna Mission. It is the foundation day of the Ramakrishna Mission. In uh, 1st May 1897, Swami Vivekananda went back from here to India and formally started the Ramakrishna Mission. So, 1st May 1897, today is the foundation day. Another important thing you might just came to my mind, I mentioned the the Zoroastrians, the Parsis. So this year the World Parsi uh, Congress, uh, World Parsi Conference will be held here in New York. I think they are celebrating 5000 years of Zoroastrianism or something. Uh, Yeah, so that is the background how Vedanta came here to the West and to the United States particularly. What is the core teaching of Vedanta and how is it relevant to us? Very quickly, it is easy to uh, summarize the teaching of Vedanta. Now when I'm going to talk about the teaching of Vedanta, I'm going to uh, emphasize Advaita Vedanta because the tradition I am closest to and uh, uh, Swami Vivekananda. Yes, it's important to mention that when Swami Vivekananda taught Vedanta here, he taught it in a holistic way. Many people who are traditionalists, we said, no, this is not Vedanta, what Swami on is teaching. What Swami vivekananda taught was um, sort of the whole of Indian spiritual heritage uh, and with the label of Vedanta, not just specifically Advaita Vedanta. Though he was at core, at, in his foundation, if you pressed him, which school of Vedanta do you identify with? He will always say Advaita Vedanta. Uh, that is the because we belong to the Dashnami Sampradaya, sannyasis are the ten orders started by Adi Shankaracharya, but in a more liberal sense. So when he talked about Vedanta, he talked about Vishishtadvaita also. He talked about dvaita in many of many of his talks. He talked about um, you know Vedanta being a uh, this like a super set, including both Vishishtadvaita, dvaita, and of course Advaita Vedanta. Often he talked about a uh, development from dvaita to Vishishtadvaita to Advaita. So these are some interesting ideas. He presented uh, Patanjali Yoga, the first translation here as Raja Yoga and which was done here in the Vedanta Society of New York. So Patanjali Yoga Sutras, he translated with a kind of Vedantic commentary on the on Patanjali Yoga and that's what he presented as Raja Yoga here. Uh, he presented uh, Bhakti in the sense of Naradiya Bhakti um, as the Bhakti stream of Vedanta. So what I'm trying to say is, When Swami Vivekananda taught Vedanta here, it was foundationally Advaita Vedanta, no doubt about it, and he stressed it. But also in a wider sense, he also taught bhakti, he also taught meditation, uh, Raja Yoga. In fact, that's what was very popular, uh, which became very popular here in the West. Meditation was very attractive. So all of these things he gave in a broad term Vedanta. I'm just saying this to distinguish it from, suppose you go to A Pandit today to learn uh, Vedanta. So, what you will learn is classical Advaita Vedanta, for example. Uh, And uh, if you compare it with what Swami Vivekananda is saying, Swami Vivekananda seems to be painting on a much broader canvas, sort of general canvas of Indian spirituality. Uh, Having said that, let me focus more narrowly on. So, if somebody asks me, What is Vedanta? Uh, It is quite easy to answer. Uh, It's more difficult to explain in detail, but It's easy to answer directly. The answer is Tattva Masi. You can answer in one sentence. That thou art, the famous mahavakya from the Chandogya Upanishad. The teaching of Vedanta, the core teaching, especially from the Advaitic perspective, is summed up in in these sentences. These are called Mahavakyas. Mahavakyas, literally profound sentences or great sentences, because they sum up the teaching of advaita vedanta and they tell you one thing the identity of jiva and brahman in a more general sense if i might say the individual and the cosmic you are there is an ultimate reality all right every religion or philosophy talks about something like that fine but with the, the uniqueness of advaita vedanta is you are that ultimate reality now we might react by saying that uh, i don't know that I don't feel that I am some kind of ultimate reality. And there Advaita says, yes. So we are suffering from, we are under the influence of a pervasive ignorance. And this ignorance is about our own nature and it has to be corrected. And this correction is done through knowledge. Knowledge about, we're ignorant about our nature and knowledge about our nature uh, is, is the teaching of Advaita Vedanta. In fact, representative Mahavakyas are taken from the different Vedas, from the, from the Rig Veda uh, that traditionally we take um, uh, this Pragyanam Brahma. Ultimate reality Brahman is consciousness itself. From the Samaveda, Tattva Masi, that thou art. From the Yajur Veda, Brihadarnek Upanishad, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. And from the Atharva Veda, I am Atma Brahma, from the Mandukya Upanishad, this very self is Brahman. And as you can, if you've noticed carefully, that all of them mean the same thing. They all mean that you are that ultimate reality. Now very quickly, before we go on to more contemporary issues, what does it mean? How can we understand this? What is this ultimate reality? And how am I that ultimate reality? And remember, the whole goal of this entire project was to overcome suffering. How will it help me to overcome suffering, especially and that second arrow of the Bhagavan Buddha spoke about, how will all this help me? Here is here are the answers. What is that ultimate reality? And how am I that ultimate reality? Uh, Vedanta says, this inquiry has to start with oneself. You start with yourself. Vedanta is telling you, you are Brahman. You don't agree. No, I don't understand this. I don't agree. What, what, what do you mean? So Vedanta says, all right like any good teacher start where the student is start with the, at the level of the student from the near to the far from the known to the unknown from what is to what shall be so here the it's not far it is actually near to nearer <laughs> so it starts with what do you think you are then forget brahman atman and all that what do you think you are i am this our reaction will be i am this all right point to it what are you this one the body I suppose so. All right, let's start with the body and then by a process of inquiry and there are many such processes given in Vedanta, all wonderful. I mean, it's really unique, these methodologies. I have not found it in my wide studies across philosophical and religious literatures of the East and the West. I have not found such remarkable insights. I mean, incomparable really. Uh, what other philosophies or religions are trying to talk about in the language of myths, in the language of illusion or poetry. Um, Vedanta seems to point it out directly to you in the simplest, direct, most powerful, logical, rational way, presented unmatchable. I don't, I don't see it anywhere at all. Uh, so start with the body and apply these techniques. It, multiple techniques are possible. Panchakosha Viveka, the method of the five sheets of the human personality. Drigdrishya Viveka, the method of the seer, the discrimination or the analysis of the seer and the seen. Uh, the Avastatraya Viveka, the method of the uh, three states of waking, dreaming and uh, deep sleep. In any of these methods, you will begin to see, I cannot be the body, Yes, I'm not denying that the body is there, I'm experiencing it, but the very fact that I am experiencing the body means that I am the experiencer of the body. I am not the experienced object, just as I cannot be this experienced object, the book, because it's an object and I am the experiencer. I see and it is seen. The seer and the seen cannot be the same reality. It seems obvious when we talk about external things. But then it seems very surprising when we apply the same uh, criterion to the body. Because I not only see the body, I can touch it, smell it, taste it, all five senses can act on the body. And yet I feel that I am the body. So this it hammers us this conception that I am the body. And we begin to see that, yes, I'm not the body, but then what am I? Then Panchakosha Viveka will tell you, look inwards. Do you feel, you are there. If if you are not literally the body, you are something there in this body. Yes, we feel that. you are asked to look a little inwards, Uh, what do you sense? Inwards, not physically inwards. If you go physically into the body, you will find more body. (laughs) You will find organs and tissues and blood and bones. But if you inquire in deeper, what is the subtler aspect of this body? It is the physiological processes which keep this body alive, life. In Sanskrit, prana. So are you prana? You're not the body. But are you the prana which surges through this body? Which when it is there, you say, I am here. When the prana goes out, you say that the person is gone. So is the person then, is it prana? It's a subtle question, a good question. And then again, we are asked to see. Uh, Because of certain, you know, that that there are techniques of seeing this, uh, this uh, Sabhikara, Nirvhikara, Drashta and Drishya, uh, Chetana and Jara, multiple criterion are applied to first to convince us intellectually, that I cannot be the physical body, I cannot be the vital forces, Prana, um, for these reasons, not just intellectually, then we begin to see it as a fact. It's not just... I am appreciating an argument. This is an important thing in Vedanta. Vedanta is beginning to end experiential. At no point is Vedanta making a speculative claim. It's a stunning thing about Vedanta. Every other approach. One is the common approach of religion, which is Vishwaskaro, believe in it. Here is a set of teachings. The book tells us, the master tells us, um, and you have to believe in it. You have to have faith. Without faith, no religion is not possible. So that is one way of religion. We are not denying that such religion, that it is valid. It will work. If you have faith, it will work. That is the common approach of bhakti. And that is presented all religions, especially theistic religions. Um, so Hinduism itself is so broad. I call Hinduism a full spectrum religion. So it is so broad that from a Hindu perspective, You can easily understand what a Christian or a Muslim is trying to do. That All right. The moment you hear a little bit about Christianity or Islam, you understand immediately it's a bhakti path. It's a path of faith and belief and worship. Um, That's why here in the United States, for example, that's the only kind of religion people know. And that's why religion is called faith. Here the word for religion in America is faith. What is your faith? If you ask, is Advaita Vedanta faith? It would be a little odd to call Advaita Vedanta faith. Patanjali yoga, is it a faith? It just seems to be opposite of faith. (laughs) So, but in Hinduism, we also understand a religion like, say, Buddhism, where no god is talked about. Even Jainism, there's no god which is talked about in the sense of a theistic god, which is something that people here have difficulty in digesting. I see most learned debates going on. Is Buddhism a religion here? We say, ha, arya baba, we know for the last 2,500 years, Buddhism is also a religion. Definitely. Here it is difficult to understand because people think religion means some kind of a faith or belief system in God. How can you have religion without God? So um, so in, in Hinduism, you realize these multiple approaches are possible. Um, coming back to it, we realize that prana is, I am not the prana, applying the various criteria. Um, So, Vedanta is not faith in that sense. You are not being asked to believe that you are not the body. You're not being asked to have faith that you are not the prana. You have to see for yourself. First, understand why am I not the body? The body is there, but why am I not it? I'm not identical to it. One to one, I'm not it. Why am I not the prana? Then, something deeper and more subtler than the prana, the mind. And I'm shown by the same criterion changing and unchanging, subject and object sentient and insentient, I cannot be the mind. The mind is there, but I cannot be the mind. Fundamental deep insight of not only Advaita Vedanta but Sankhya also, that consciousness and mind are not the same thing. Consciousness is that which experiences and mind is also an object, just like the world is an object, the body is an object, the prana is an object, the mind is also an object. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas, these are also very subtle, but they're objects and they are revealed to you, the consciousness. So you are not the mind also. And then you look more inwards, and then you find the, you know, the Vijnanamaya kosha, the intellect, which you are using right now for understanding all this. Are you the intellect? Are you intelligence? That also we are not, for the same reasons, changing and unchanging, um, conscious and in uh, sentient and insentient. Subject and object, multiple reasons, five or six reasons can be given. We begin to see that we cannot be the intellect, also. Our real nature is not even the intellect. And beyond that, Vedanta speaks about um, the uh, causal body, the Ananda Maya. And that also, for similar reasons, we are not. So, identifies five levels of what we ourselves might call I am that, this body, and shows us that we are not any of these five levels. And then it shows us that you must be the witness consciousness, the, that awareness which experiences the physical, the vital, the mental, the intellectual, the causal, the uh, Annamaya, Pranamaya, Manomaya, Vigyanamaya, Anandamaya. Or in the Drik Drishya Viveka, you are the consciousness which is pure drashta, pure subject. And everything else up to the mind and intellect are objects to you. Um, Viveka, or the Avastatraya Viveka, where you are the consciousness in which the waker and the waker's experienced world, the dreamer and the the dream world, and the deep sleeper and the deep sleep merged that the potential, the darkness, the bhijavasta, all of them come and go. You are the background consciousness of all of it all. So all of this, all these methods, Avastatraya, Panchakosha, Drigrishya, all of them, they point to one reality. What Shankaracharya poetically sings, you know, uh, mano I'm not the mind, not the intellect, not why am I not the mind? Why not the intellect? Why not the memory? Why not the ahangakar na. look at the paradoxical nature of the statement. Ankar means ego. Literally, if you translate into English, it means, I am not I. I am not I. How can I not be I? That seems self-contradictory. No, you are the witness, the consciousness in which this ego also floats up, plays around and disappears. Then only Shankaracharya sings, rupaha shivoham, shivoham. I am of the nature of consciousness and bliss. That is That itself is Shiva, auspiciousness. But this is just the first step of Advaita Vedanta. The first, it is a Swami Ranganathan used to call it a Vedantic bombshell, stunning thing that we do not actually know what we are or who we are. In fact, the ultimate solution to all our problems is knowing this. How is this a solution? Remember our, our project, Overcoming Suffering, the second arrow of Bhagawan Buddha. So how will this help us? When we discover this consciousness, that which we are, this Chidananda Rupa Shivoham, at that level, from the perspective of that consciousness, what suffering is there? Physical suffering, body. Hunger and thirst, mind, uh, uh, prana. Depression, unhappiness, frustration, mind. I am the awareness which watches the, the physical suffering come and go. I am the awareness which reveals the unhappiness and depression in the mind and the, ultimately the unhappiness, depression also goes away and you get peace and uh, stability in the mind. That also is revealed by that one consciousness. Does that consciousness have aging? Does it have death? Does it have um, disease? Does it have frustration or unhappiness? No. From that perspective, we realize that in the midst of the storm of life, There is an island of calm always present within us. And I'm saying in English, like, you know, within us. Advaita Vedanta, all all teachers would correct us immediately. Not within you, you are that. It's not that my pure consciousness is fine, but I have got many problems. You are that pure consciousness. You are fine. (laughs) So this, first of all, you have to understand it. Even intellectually, you have to understand it. Then deepening this understanding is itself realization. This is this debate. So, spiritual realization and intellectual understanding are they different? Are they the same? Is it some kind of reading and understanding something? No, not that. Is it something different than intellectual understanding something different and spiritual realization something different? No, not even that. In Advaita Vedanta, I cannot repeat this again. I mean, more. I have to. I cannot overemphasize this. In Advaita Vedanta, that intellectual understanding which you gain by the cultivation of this philosophy, Shravana, Manana, Nidityasana, that intellectual understanding which you gain, which feels I have understood it, but I am not yet enlightened, that one itself deepens into enlightenment. That Jnana, which we call Paroksha Jnana, it deepens into a Paroksha Jnana. That grasp or clarity which you get after some time, if you hold on to that, through Nididhyasana, that itself becomes what is called Brahma Jnana. So this is the first step, realizing this Satchidananda, I am this. The next step where Advaita is established, non-duality, very quickly I'll mention it. Advaita Vedanta, if you, if you stop at this step, what happens? This is Sankhya, the philosophy of Kapila. Vivekananda used to call him the first philosopher of the human race, uh, Kapila. So if stop there, it is Sankhya, it is Patanjali Yoga, Prakriti Purusha Vyoga, uh, the separation of consciousness and uh, nature or, or uh, material existence. Now, further question is asked, this universe which you have separated, I am the witness, this is Adrashta, this is Drishya, I am the Atman, this is Panchakosha and, and the universe separate from me. Is it really separate? One Sadhu in Uttarakhand put it very nicely. Listen to this question. Many of you may have watched Drigdrisya Viveka. So the sadhu said, Vivek Karte ye Vedanti So these are unripe Vedantins. Preliminary children who keep on doing Drik Drishya Viveka. So only the first step. And you should not emphasize it, emphasize it too much because it's a kind of alienation, a kind of separation from everything else. I am consciousness, I am fine, separate from everything else. Coronavirus people are suffering, let them suffer. I know that I do not suffer. I am consciousness itself. It is all a dream. So this is only the first step. The second step is just the reverse that Sadhu put it very nicely. drishya kya drashta Let me repeat that. It is true. You are the witness consciousness. You are separate from the entire universe. That's true. But the reverse, think about it. Is the universe separate from you? What does that mean? If one thing is separate from the other, then the other thing also must be separate. If I have a a pen and glasses, glasses are separate, and pen is separate. So the two must be two separate things. What does it mean? If one is separate from the other, other will not be separate? But it's not so. Suppose the book, I take the book and I say the paper is separate from the book in the sense the paper existed before the book was printed. And uh, paper will exist if the book is someday destroyed, paper will still exist as paper. Uh, so paper is not equal to book. Paper is different from the book. But is the book different from paper? No, because the book cannot exist without the paper. Here in the Atlantic Ocean, there are 10,000 waves and it is true that water is different from the waves because water can exist as a wave, may not exist as a wave. Water can exist as water vapor, water can exist in your glass, uh, but is the wave different from water? No, the wave cannot exist without water. Similarly, Advaita Vedanta asks, yes, very beautifully by drig Drishya Viveka, panchakosha Kosha Viveka, Avastatraya Viveka, you have differentiated and understood you are the consciousness different from the, what you experience, the object. But now the next question is, this objective universe, this body, this personality, is it different from you? You are different from it, but is it different from you? And the answer will be no. Advaita Vedanta says that you, you yourself appear as your own object. That which you are experiencing as Drishya is nothing other than the Drashta. Swami Vivekananda put it this way. He said, one alone exists. It appears as nature and soul. Okay, what we call Prakriti and Purusha. One Brahman alone appears as Pramata and Prameya, the knower and the known. So this you the Satchidananda, you alone appear as all this universe through the network of Maya names and forms it seems spread pretty... one good way of understanding this is a dream when you experience a dream you fall asleep and you forget that you are sleeping then you feel you are walking around taking a walk in the park talking to people you can see the sky and the earth and the lake and people walking around and you feel yes i am here and i'm watching all these people the truth is all of these people and the sky and the lake and the park and all of it is nothing but you the dreamer you alone are appearing. As the person and the dream that you are, then the experiences that the person is having. The subject and the object, both in the dream, are nothing but you, the dreamer. So Gaurapadi uses this to maximum effect in his commentary on the Mandukya Karika, in the Vaitatya Prakarana, second chapter of the Mandukya Karika, to show that ultimately, from the perspective of consciousness, there is no fundamental difference between our dream experience and our waking experience. In both cases, subject and object appear and they interact but underlying it is one consciousness. What is the great conclusion? You are Satchidananda, witness consciousness and this entire universe which you experience is not a second reality apart from you. This is the meaning of Tatvam Asi. Or this is the meaning of Aham Brahmasmi. So the conclusion to repeat again, it is true I am not the mind, not the body, not the universe, nothing except pure consciousness. But the mind, body, universe, and all beings here, they are not apart from me the pure consciousness. They are appearing in me the pure consciousness. I alone appear as all this. This Swami Vivekananda, this, these two teachings, you are the Atman and this Atman is none other than Brahman. These two teachings, Swami Vivekananda put it in modern terms, more than a hundred years ago here in New York, two things he has taught. One is, he says, the divinity of already within ourselves. He says that the goal of human life is to manifest the divinity already within ourselves. So what he calls the divinity within ourselves is this consciousness, that I am Satchidananda, I am the Drashta, Jidananda Rupa Shivoham, Kshetragya in, in the terms of 13th chapter of Bhagavad Gita. This teaching of Vedanta, he called it the divinity within ourselves. And the second great teaching he gave was, the oneness of all existence. The oneness of all existence is that the idea of Brahman, that one Satchidananda alone is appearing through Maya as this entire universe. So if you say Swami Vivekananda's teachings, um, very simple, your own divinity and the oneness of all existence. He says, my mission in life can be put in a few words, to preach unto humanity, their own divinity, and how to make it manifest in every movement of life. Here is another important teaching of Swami Vivekananda, not just to realize it, but to express it in life. So this expression in life, this is the old concept of Jivan Mukti. Not just that I have understood it, I have understood, I've heard the lectures, I've read the books, I've got it, I can explain it to you. Not just that, how can I use it to solve all my problems? And also live in a way which will be a blessing to society around me. So he says, My mission in life can be put in a few words. It is to preach unto humanity their inner divinity and how to make it manifest in every movement of life. This is what is called the ethical manifestation model of enlightenment. So, enlightenment becoming a jnani has these two aspects. One is, you might call it a paradigm shift. Actually, there was a paper at uh, Harvard last year, from a Buddhist perspective, uh, talking about what is enlightenment. And they came up with these two models. One is to realize the ultimate truth. In, in Buddhist terms, the Shunyata, so the Bodhi which you get. Uh, so that is one aspect, they call it the paradigm shift. We, now we are thinking, I am this body mind, here is this universe, this is my paradigm now. This completely shifts and I become, it's very clear to me that I am awareness. And in me, the awareness, the entire universe is appearing. There's a paradigm shift. But this is one way of looking at enlightenment. Another way of looking at enlightenment is what they called ethical manifestation. The qualities of the Buddha must manifest in my life, the qualities of a Vivekananda, of a Shankaracharya. Of a Mirabai must manifest in my life: the fearlessness, the peace, the love of others, the total unselfishness, the happily willing to give up this body in the service of others. This kind of, you know, what we might call a complete saintliness, a a spiritualized personality. This is also uh, one aspect of enlightenment. These two must go together. There must be a realization, "Aham Brahmasmi." But there must be also a life accompanying it, which it expresses that realization. What is the so the topic for today is still remaining the relevance of all of this to 21st century. Let me make make a couple of points, and then I, I'll uh, stop. It'll will, it will come out in the discussions. Um, one is the interfaith harmony. So this comes more from Sri Ramakrishna, Swami Vivekananda's guru notice that uh, Hinduism is enormously diverse sometimes to explain the diversity of Hinduism when I go to schools and colleges here and talk to young people I say you cannot understand the diversity of Hinduism from an American perspective here we people think that Christianity is so diverse there are hundreds of different churches I say all of that from our perspective from far of India when you look at all these different churches of Christianity they are all minor variations on the same theme. In Hinduism, diversity, let me uh, explain to you what it might be like. So these are American kids. I tell them, just imagine all the different churches of Christianity. It is Presbyterian or Episcopalian and or Baptist or whatever you call it, Universalist. Or, all of them, you make them together in, and the Catholics, you take, put them all together into one Christian faith. To that you add all the denominations of Judaism, Reform and Orthodox, Ultra Orthodox. To that you add add all the varieties of Muslims, um, you know Sunni and Shia and all the inner variety, internal varieties. You make one mega Abrahamic faith. So you can see the little kids; their eyes are going big. And then I say, imagine the diversity in that. You cannot even conceive of it. It is still less than the diversity in Hinduism. <laughs> they are stunned when they hear this. One reason is, all the way back in the Vedas, in Rig Veda, you find Ekam um, sat Vipra Bahudavadanti. If you come here to the Vedanta Society in New York, first thing you will see it's written, Ekam sat Vipra The truth is one, the reality is one. The wise, they express it in different ways. We understood that the ultimate reality, I'm not just talking about Advaita Vedanta here. Throughout Hinduism, the understanding is the ultimate reality is infinite and therefore when you try to express the infinite, not only is it infinite, it is also beyond uh, language and beyond thought. So that which is in its essence beyond language and thought, when you try to express it through language and thought. After all, what is Upanishads? It's language. When you try to express it through language and thought, you will have a variety of expressions. because The ultimate reality is uh, infinite and beyond language. Sri Ramakrishna gave this very homely example, you know, in the in Bengal, in the villages, you have these big, big ponds called pukur. So in these ponds, when he says when Hindus go to one bathing hut and they drink the water, take the water, they call it jal. um and the Muslims go and they call it pani. And he says the Englishmen go and call it aqua. I don't think they actually did call it aqua, but whatever. So. This, Different people are using different language to refer to the same reality. Similarly, what we have found, not only in all the varieties of Hinduism, but in all the religions, we have come across the same reality. But we are trying to express it in different language in different formats. And so you get a variety of expressions. The goal of human life is to realize that. The goal of human life is not to believe in these things is to actually realize and experience it for ourselves and transform our lives so the religions of the world then become different paths of realization so notice the connection infinite reality cannot be expressed in language so when you try to express in language you will get variety of expressions to realize that infinite reality is the goal of human life then all these varieties of religions are different paths which help us to realize that they are reality that's the core purpose of religion these are simple points, but they answer profound questions. What is religion? What is the purpose of life? Why are there different religions? Is one true and others are false? It is such a great teaching. In India, it does not seem to be so important. When I was in India, this teaching of the harmony of religions, I and others also, Hindus, we would say, ah, okay, we accept it. What's the, why are you making a big fuss about of it? But here I see the importance. Very smart people, um, otherwise very learned people, even in their own religions. Somehow, it's deep down, deep down, there is this uh, core idea, fundamental idea that if one is true, others have to be false. L- just a few months ago, there was this conference at Harvard University. Professor Clooney, who is an expert in, uh, who teaches comparative religions in uh, at, at Harvard Divinity School, and is an expert in Vishishtadvaita Vedanta very uh, devoted gentleman himself a christian uh, catholic minister and uh, but if you go to his office at uh, harvard university first of all you will find a picture of devi there <laughs> so he has written a book studying hindu and christian classics together so there was a conference on that book now two professors one uh, expert in christianity one expert in judaism solid people and they are teaching in the top universities in the West. One of them asked, both of them asked that um, all this is good Professor uh, Clooney, but uh, um, what is the point of it? After all, at the end of it, you have to pick one, right? So from, <laughs> I can see many of you are nodding, you are saying no. Yes, that is the reaction from Indians. Why should you have, to, why do you have to say that one is right and others are false? Here it is taken for granted, after studying all of these things, you have to come to the conclusion this is right and everything else has to be rejected. Why? We don't. We never think in that way. So then I realized this is an important teaching that Vedanta has to share uh, in the West. It's very important. The World Parliament of Religions, it is still being held every four years. Maybe this time it will be online. So I went to one. Because Swami Vivekananda had gone to world parliament in 1893. I thought I should attend one at least. The one was in Toronto a couple of years back. So I told a rabbi there, um, very nice gentleman from Israel. You can see the world parliament as a Hindu, I agree to all of this. What you are saying, the truth of all religions, harmony between religions, it's all what you are saying. We, We agree to all of it and go further ahead. So what have I got to learn here? And he said, not to learn. You come here to share what you are saying from a Hindu perspective, everybody needs to hear. So this is an important contribution of Vedanta in 21st century, harmony of religions. I'm sorry to say that, but it is still necessary. It should not be necessary. I'm sitting here in New York. It is the city of 9 by 11. This is two 9 by 11's. Swami Vivekananda gave his important speech in the World Parliament of Religions. On September 11th, 1893 and here (coughs) on September 11 2001 what religious fanaticism can do and what is the solution for that religious fanaticism. So These two, it is very vivid here in uh, everybody in um, New York and Manhattan, those who were there at that time, I was not here, those who were there at that time, they all remember the day and the time and the moment when the Twin Towers were uh, destroyed. So harmony of faiths, important teaching. Uh, We can discuss this later as the questions come up. One more point, and I'm finished, is that uh, consciousness studies become a hot subject today. What is consciousness? Because of David Chalmers, who has propounded this hard problem of consciousness. He's right here in NYU, in the mind-brain science, uh, mind-brain consciousness unit at NYU. Uh, He says that consciousness cannot be reduced to brain. So that has kicked up a storm. Deepak Chopra, you may have heard of Deepak Chopra. So in, in a conference, before the conference, he was telling me that, uh, in, in a dialogue, he was telling me that, dekhiye, Swamiji, ye log to hi baat leke, but they don't give credit. This hard problem of consciousness <coughs> is a fundamental idea in Advaita Vedanta thousands of years ago. I said that dekhiye, theek hai. Let them not give credit. Because the moment David Chalmers says that, I got it from Vedanta or Buddhism or something like that, immediately he'll be dismissed by the rest. i say, oh, OK, but if he says, I am an atheist, I am a materialist, I'm coming at it from a completely Western materialistic reductionist point of view, and I'm still saying you cannot reduce consciousness to brain, then people sit up and take notice. So it has kicked up a start. If you Google it, hard problem of consciousness is going on now. And there are many, many thinkers, many, many scientists. Christoph Koch, um, who's the chief scientist of the Paul Ellen Brain Institute, uh, he also agrees now that consciousness cannot be reduced to, to matter and so on. So Vedanta, not only Vedanta, Vedanta, Buddhism, especially the Tibetan uh, Madhyamaka Vijnavada Buddhism, um, then Uh, Sankhya, Patanjali Yoga—they all have very, very important insights to contribute to the present discussion of consciousness studies. There is an important book written by Evan Thompson, "Sleeping, Dreaming, Being: Sleeping, Dreaming, um, Being—Consciousness Studies and Eastern Wisdom." There, at the beginning, he says consciousness studies is not a new subject; it started five thousand years ago in the texts called the Upanishads. Then he says something which we will, I as a teacher of Vedanta, I will not dare to uh, say this. Uh, He says that uh, um, these Upanishads are so important in human history that history should be dated as before Upanishad and after Upanishad, not AD and BC. History should be dated um, from the date of the Upanishads. Of course, it's difficult to determine the date of the Upanishads. That's a different matter. But see, he's emphasizing the centrality of the Upanishads to this whole field of modern consciousness studies.
1: The teacher, Baran that you mentioned, is it the same one we read in Sri Aurobindo's books?
0: No, that's different. Um, This Nirodbaran Chakravarti was a professor of philosophy, I think, in Jadavpur University. After retirement, he used to come and teach the Brahmacharis in Belurmat. But he was a disciple of uh, Swami Abhedanandaji, who was a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna. And Swami Abhedanandaji was here in the Vedanta Society of New York for 20 years. Swami Vivekananda came here just a couple of times. But really, this Vedanta Society of New York was established on firm footing by Swami Abhedanandaji. His disciple was Nirodhbaran Chakravarti, whom we as young brahmacharis, we saw in his old age.
1: I have had glimpses, but I see that there is so much attraction to experience the sights and sounds from the senses, that uh, I tend to externalize everything. I tend to turn everything, even my glimpses as an experience. Oh, that was a good experience. I need to do it again. So, I wanted your views.
0: Right. Here, the practical importance of the other Yogas becomes evident. Notice, Advaita Vedanta is not at fault. From the very beginning, they have told us uh, four-fold qualifications. sadhan, Chatushtaya, Viveka, Vairagya, shat Shatsampati, Mumukshutvam. These have to be intensified. Then only the ultimate clarity and conviction you get, that will become a practical reality, a stable reality in your life the one problem with modern teachers, especially modern teachers of Advaita, you'll be surprised to see how popular Advaita is here in the West. You mentioned Muji, uh, then Eckhart Tolle is there, Um, then some of them openly admit they're teaching Advaita Vedanta, some of them don't admit so clearly, but they all have very clear roots in Advaita Vedanta, a little bit in Buddhism. Uh, Rupert Spira, recently I had a dialogue with Rupert Spira, you can see, I think it's online, Adya Shanti also. Adya Shanti, so they are very popular. One uh, minor point, if I may raise here, is every Advaita Vedanta classical Advaita Vedanta text, if you take up, it starts with the qualifications of the student and gives an emphasis on discipline first, and then enters into the teaching. Whereas now, because it's an impatient age, I think, so these teachers. And they are, all, they are genuine. The ones you mentioned, I feel. I mean, I'm nobody to give a stamp of authority on that. But we get the feeling that they have some deep spiritual insight and they can uplift you. But it has to be combined with that, that discipline, which they generally do not emphasize. Notice in many cases, not all, but in many of those cases, they have been spiritual seekers for a long time. They have themselves practiced and struggled for some time before they came to this breakthrough. Um, So one attraction of Advaita Vedanta is, and it's not false, but it's a little tricky, is that it is, uh, if you understand it, you realize it is instantaneous and it is effortless. Now we are lazy people. So if somebody tells you, you can become enlightened instantaneously and you can become enlightened effortlessly. I mean, that is the path for me. He says, <laughs> that's the path. And I add it to that. If you say this is the highest teaching, final teaching, um, ultimately you have to come to this. All of this is true, but that instantaneous and effortlessness, it is backed up by a long-standing effort, if not in this life, in past lives. So the practical advice in such cases, it's great that you are interested in Advaita Vedanta. I mean, it's a great, great blessing the avaduta gita starts with ishvara anugraha teva advaita vasana this desire and liking for non duality if you ah yes if you have it it is the sign of god's blessing god has blessed blessed you Ishwara has blessed you the greatest final blessing that god can give is to generate this liking for advaita in you now what is the additional thing that I can do to stabilize this insight you're talking about, the insight you've got is correct. Now, how do you stabilize it? That's where the three other Yogas come in. That's why Swami Vivekananda emphasized that from an Advaitic perspective, those are preliminary, but they are important, like the foundation of a house. Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga and Dhyana or Raja Yoga. Regular practice of meditation, morning and evening. You pick up a technique. Or you take Mantra Diksha and then Guru will give you a Mantra and Ishta Devata, stick to it. So that can, that will stabilize the mind. You see, the intellect often runs far ahead of our body-mind. Intellect understands many things, which the rest of our body-mind system is not willing to follow up on. So that's where meditation is useful. Karma Yoga. One very big obstacle for most of us is that we are so tied up with this little personality. I, Sarvapriyananda, everything is for Sarvapriyananda, food, drink, company, uh, the praise of others and pleasure and success, even God-realization, enlightenment, everything is for Sarvapriyananda. This is the poison for spiritual life. So what Karma Yoga does is it enables us to relax this death grip we have upon this little personality uh, to step back. Remember, this little personality will never, never be free. The person will never be free. You will be free of the person. That is freedom. Person is body-mind, is a system subject to destruction. It has been created and will be destroyed. So, karma yoga and bhakti yoga, uh, devotion, whichever form works for you. Some people are there, especially here in America, I find unfortunately they they feel that it is beneath them to believe in any god and, and tell me only pure advaita i don't want to listen to uh, unfortunate because uh, bhakti is a very great power in our life so in some form if you have devotion cultivate it regular uh, little bit of you know bhajan even st- stotra prayer prayer uh, so bhakti karma yoga dhyana yoga these are foundations daily practice them you will see the in the insight you have got from advaita it will become luminous and living yes
1: in practice how do you distinguish between forbearance towards suffering and indifference or apathy towards suffering forbearance,
0: forbearance. is a, yes forbearance is a good, pra- a good um, practice good practice Indifference and apathy can be there for the suffering of others. Generally, it's very difficult to be indifferent or apathetic to the one's own suffering. When I am hungry, when I am in pain, or I see one toothache. Coronavirus may be creating pandemic throughout the world. But if my tooth is aching, that is first priority for me. So it is very difficult to be indifferent or apathetic to one's own suffering it's best to say that if I am eager to remove my own suffering, the same eagerness and concern I should exhibit for others. Here the headquarters of United Nations is there in New York. So when you enter that big golden rule, you see, this is the they say it is the common uh, ethical rule for all religions do unto others what you would have them do unto you. So, Atma Upam yena sarvatra, samam pashyati yo Arjuna, Bhagavad Gita says, who sees others as the same as oneself. Sukham va yadi va dukkham. Happiness, when I am happy, how good I feel. So others are happy, I should feel good. Dukkham, when I am unhappy, how desperate I feel to overcome my suffering. When others are unhappy, I should feel the same uh, uh, desperation to help them out. So uh, one cannot be apathetic, indifferent to one's own suffering. Similarly, one should not be apathetic or indifferent to the other person's suffering. Forbearance is a good practice. It's a fundamental practice of Vedanta, Titiksha. And Sri Ramakrishna used to, you know, used to play with words pun. Uh, only I think those who are Bengalis here will understand immediately. He used to, he used to say, je shoy je na shoy tar na shoy. In Hindi, if I translate, it will be something like, jo sahata hai, wo rata hai. Jo na sahay, uska na So, forbearance, deliberately, consciously try to forbear, Titiksha in in Vedanta.
1: Swamiji, my first question is, as a householder, we hardly get time to study Vedanta. Then what is the way out for us? How how to realize the self in spite of being a householder? For for Swamiji, it is very easy. According to me,
0: I am sorry if I am wrong. <laughs> because we are yes. entire time I, I understand. Be... Let me uh, answer that first. Straight answer. Read Karma Yoga of Swami Vivekananda. <coughs> the more I meet people and the more I uh, face questions, not only in India but here in the West, I realize how prescient was Swami Vivekananda. How, you know, we say in Hindi, Darshi. More than 100 years, 120 years ago. When he wrote karma yoga and he he gave those lectures on karma yoga right here in New York, he understood that the kind of spirituality which will be required in the future is not the spirituality of monks sitting in Gangotri is not the spirituality of um, you know pundits sitting in the away the or professor sitting at Harvard University. It will be spirituality required by person engaged in the world continuously so therefore, this idea of karma yoga how you can convert. You are busy several hours a day and the most of your time and energy goes in in this activity, whether at home or in your profession or in your community. That time and energy, if if Vedanta tries to compete with that, Vedanta will lose. Our uh, responsibilities uh, in in the job, in the family are so much that it, it takes away the best part of our day, best part of our energy. Then very little is left over for anything else. The only way out is to convert that activity itself into spiritual practice. And it can be done. It actually can be done. It's not a very new idea. That's exactly what um, Krishna advised Arjuna. See, he's in the middle of a battlefield. How can he practice um, spirituality? One Sadhu put it, He's called the laughing Swami, he put it very humorously. He said, that uh, Sri Krishna gave so much advice to Arjuna in the eighteen chapters of Bhagavad Gita. And he said, Uska ek bhi Arjuna ne Palan Not even one thing did Arjuna followed. Because it's impossible for him. He is in the middle of a battlefield. How will he sit? Keep your body straight and breathing control and then focus your mind. You you cannot do that. Practice devotion to me, Krishna. You cannot do that in the middle of the battlefield. But one thing only that Arjuna could do, and Sri Krishna emphasized that from the beginning to the end, that is Karma Yoga. How to transform our daily life into spiritual practice? Start a little bit only. One or two activities I will do. That example I've given a number of times. That One day I was going through Lucknow Airport several years ago. And late in the night I was the only transit passenger. Of course I was dressed like this. And uh, you know, they are the CISF, here they are the, the TSA people in India, the CISF policemen, they will check you. So there was a sergeant and he said to me, Mahatma Ji, kuch bataye." Then I said, no, I have to give a talk, a lecture now, here, he said, yes, nobody's there, Bataye kuch. And then he called the other policemen and women, they all came and they surrounded me and they made me stand on that box. They make you stand on the box and they pat you down, they so stood on the box and said, what to say to them. Then I asked a gentleman, um, so said, do you do, what, do you, any kind of ritual or worship before you come for your duties?" And then he said, "Yes, Hanumanji, ko phool I put flowers at the feet of Hanumanji." I said, "Bus, very good." As these people walk in front of you and you search them, you stamp their documents and you pass them throughout the day, this work you are doing, each one, you do it firmly, politely. Respectfully, attentively, and after the person is passed in front of you, mentally offer one more flower at the feet of Hanumanji. The gentleman was immediately a very simple person, but intelligent. He got it immediately He was so happy. I still remember his delighted expression. He said, Wah, din bhar Hanumanji ka Whole day I can do. But that is the essence of Karma Yoga. Almost every activity we can connect to God. Okay, so that's the answer.
1: Aguruji, I wish to ask two things, and in my mind, somewhere, um, uh, no, they are connected. But I will still say both, so that you can maybe figure out whether the answers to both of them would be same or not. So one is that, uh, no, we keep saying that, no, you should be an an observer, right? You should be the drashta, right? If you believe in that, would that confuse your mind to not take an action and just to observe? Because if we say that everything is done by God, okay, that's, you uh, are me, right? just, that's one,
0: <laughs> you should be the observer. You try to be the observer. You believe that you are the observer. None of them. Vedanta is not saying that you should be the observer. When you say if you should be the observer, you try to be the observer, that's a good practice, but that's not the observer that Vedanta is talking about. Sakshi. Drashta is just the nature of consciousness. It's just the nature of consciousness to illumine what is going on. Whatever is presented to consciousness is illumined by consciousness. What Vedanta is saying is that you are the Drashta. It, choicelessly, you are the witness. You cannot be anything else. It is a confusion to think that you are the doer. What, we, what has happened to us is we are this consciousness. There's This witness consciousness already. And on that, like a layer, like a movie playing on a screen. When we look at the movie, we see the activities going on in the movie. We forget the unmoving screen behind the moving movie. (laughs) Similarly, we are that unmoving consciousness, that ever-present light. Do you tell light, try to illumine things? No, light by itself illumines things. That's the only thing it can do, choicelessly. So you are already that. You don't have to do anything first of all try to see what is meant by being consciousness or drashta don't try to be the drashta don't try to be the witness try to first understand what, what what is this i am not the body in what sense i am not the mind in what sense try to follow carefully track these instructions carefully in your instruction in your uh, experience you will begin to see what is meant by i am chaitanya or i am the drashta It's not an effort you're making. Once you recognize that, the person, Garima, will continue to do the work. Body, you cannot stop from action. The mind, you cannot stop from thinking. The intellect, you cannot stop from understanding. Memory, you cannot stop from remembering. All those activities are there. They will continue as they are. You will be completely at rest. It sounds very um, mysterious to say, how can I be rest when I'm doing all the activities? I means the person, Garima, lit up by the consciousness which you are. That, that person will continue to do whatever has to be done. Sometimes that person will be very active. Sometimes that person will be at rest and relaxing. You are always the steady experiencer of all of this. Vedanta says, this is not something that you have to do. Vedanta says, it is something that is already the fact. It's a case. It, it, it's, it's already the, um, an existing fact. You cannot do anything about it. You have just to recognize it. That will set you free from a lot of tension and problem and worry. Second question, you have to unmute.
1: Yeah. Thanks. Ma. I think that uh, clears out a lot of things in my mind. The second thing is that um, um, I am obviously a, a housemaker. I have kids. I'm married, et cetera, et cetera. But when you want to go beyond that, um, right? when you want to do more for the society, more for people, right which is the path uh right maybe right the path that you follow or maybe some other people are able to follow right that there's a no there's a constant conflict in the mind right to say that how much is enough because no, that creates a feeling of restlessness to say right that i want to do more i want to do more i want to do more but there are these responsibilities right that somebody else also mentioned right so how how would you advise right to be able to try to create a balance? So that we feel that no, whatever is our no yoga, uh, no the karma yoga towards our family, we are doing that well. As well as because we are able to connect to the larger uh, no community, larger society, right? What is our role towards them? How to how does one balance? Both yes,
0: I know it can be very difficult. Um, this much I can say that your duties, of course, what what they are in front of you, they come first, and you cannot avoid that. If if we try to avoid it. Uh, what happens is everything else that we do will be infected with that guilt and that uneasiness. So you do what what is in front of you. Um, There also don't overdo. I get the feeling after getting this experience by coming to the West. I I see here Indian parents and non-Indian parents. I always feel Indian parents do much more than necessary. So (laughs) Indian parents are always, especially Indian women, I think they're infected with a sense of inadequacy or guilt that I don't feel good enough. That I see men are always feeling good. That I've done enough. I'm, I'm great. And women, no matter how qualified, how uh, active, how um, successful, they still feel I could do better. There is always this anxiety. I don't know why. As a woman, maybe you can explain. Uh, so you are probably doing more than what is necessary uh, in in your family or your job. Always try to have, especially at our age, you know, and when you come to middle age. So, at our age, you know, we must have a component of being useful to others for your own peace of mind. Very soon, these children will grow up and go and they'll do well and they'll go in their own way in life. You must broaden yourself. To include more than your immediate, you know, husband, children, just your own father and mother, little more than that. Especially people who will not be able to give anything back to you, where you are not seeking any validation, any kind of recognition, any kind of material gain from them, but you give. What a a high ideal Swami Vivekananda said before us. He said, give, give and do not look back. Whoever looks back His ocean dwindles into a drop. His ocean dwindles into a drop. He says, give, for it shall be taken from you. Whatever we have in life, everything, everybody, every possession, including our health, our energy, our own body, it will go away. And no harm there, because we are not these. You say, what shocking things you are telling, Swamiji. I'm not telling a shocking thing. First of all, I'm telling a fact. It's a fact. Second thing is, it's actually a good thing because you are not these things. You are the clothes that I'm wearing. Do I want that all throughout my life, 50 years I will wear the same shawl? No, that's a disgusting thought. It's, I am not it. I am passing through all of this. All of these, they conglomerate around me and they will drop away. They will go their own way. You are perfect as it is as Satchidananda. You are aware before this? Now also you are the same perfect Satchitananda and you will continue to be that infinite reality. So that is always there. That is the place of peace, security, safety, ultimate safety. And centered in that, we are perfect. When we try to grab onto things, that, that I want to retain this person in my life. I want to retain this kind of money in my life, this kind of uh, popularity or the power of this position in my life then we are opening ourselves to suffering one buddhist teacher put it nicely let it come let it be let it go you when it comes in namaste come have a cup of tea and after some time it's ready to go take bye bye take care i'm perfect i'm perfectly all right one sadhu i saw in uttarakhand in in gangotri in this short summer months where a lot of pilgrims come this sadhu he used to stay in a little cottage and children used to love him because he had long beard like uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, the magician, Gandalf, like that long hair, up to his knees. The children would come and play around and all of that. Uh, so um, he would uh, I asked him, so now you are very happy. All the children are coming and playing, you know, they are climbing the tree in the ashram and joking and but in the winter for six months nobody is there. You are alone. And there is snow up to and it's not like USA or place like that, where you've got internal heating and everything is comfortable, they're outside. Uh, um, ma- minus 10 means inside the house also minus 10. <laughs> so it's very hard life. What do you do? I asked him, what do you do in, uh, uh, in those winter months? And his answer was short answer to me. He said, Mahatma ji, I'm very happy now. And then at that time, in complete loneliness and uh, you know the snowy solitude for six months every year, I am even more happy. So that is the attitude you should have to samsara. With samsara, maje Without samsara, tab bhi
1: I want to ask, what purpose are we humans collectively fulfilling in this world? Are we just a source of drama for the Supreme Being?
0: Drama not for supreme being. If you say drama, it's drama for yourself. And the divine drama is no small thing. It's not a joke. This Kashmiri Shaivisman was talking about. The whole universe is a drama, is a dance for the benefit of Shiva. So say, why should I dance for the benefit of Shiva? You are Shiva. Each one of us is that ultimate reality. So it, the question should be asked to that person. You have created this drama. You are enjoying it yourself. But if you know that it is a drama, and it is for your benefit and you are the source of it all, you will enjoy it. If you feel you are one character in the drama,
1: then there is suffering.